Well, good morning. Great to see your faces. Great to see you out. Thank you. As has been said to those of you gathering online as well, uh, great to have you uh, worship together with us as well. We're going to do what we do each week now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, whatever it is, if you could turn to our passage we're looking at today, Matthew chapter 9, now beginning at verse 14. Matthew 9, 14, and when you found that, if you would stand together with me, I'll read this passage for us, if you are able. Let's read together. Matthew writes this, Then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, uh, came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us just quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Father, we uh, ask now that you would open up our minds, our hearts, our ears to your word. Uh, we have sung your word. We have prayed your word now. As we come to sit under your word today, would you accomplish the purpose for which you sent this word to us today? You've already accomplished a purpose in me this week as I've studied. Now I'm asking that you would accomplish that, whatever purpose that is in each one here gathered today, each one listening. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, it was uh, in the 1982 film adaptation of the Broadway musical Annie that there is this painfully, kind of tragically funny scene that takes place when Annie, uh, brought from the orphanage, is first shows up at billionaire philanthropist Oliver Warbucks's mansion. Uh, she's given this kind of red carpet welcome, and after Mr. Warbucks's assistant, Grace, he kind of introduces Annie to the staff, lets them know, informs them, Annie's going to be staying with us for the whole week. Everyone's like, great. Then Grace, she's sort of like motioning to this expansive, extravagant mansion that is now Annie. She says, where would you like to start first? To which Annie responds by saying, well, I'll probably start with the windows first and then do the floors. That way, if I drip, it won't, I won't have to do the floors twice. Yeah, we, we sort of smile at, at the misunderstanding. It's, it's charming. And yet, at the same time, we also sort of wince at it because that's a little bit sad, too. Because Annie, what's she doing? She's operating and, and, and responding out of an operating assumption that basically... This is how the world works. A world where she can't fathom that someone like her is brought into a home like this for anything other than her service. But luckily, it's a musical. So cue the music and Grace and the staff now perform a high-flying song and dance number to, to help Annie understand the fullness of what she's been invited into. Realize, no, you're not brought here to work. You're brought here to enjoy. 
And when you come to this passage that we're looking at today from Matthew's Gospel, I think you see a, a similar kind of sad, funny disconnect going on as well as this scene unfolds where Jesus seems to have now offended a third group of religious people. Uh, this time, it's the disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, the context of this disconnect is these men coming to Jesus, as we read here, with a specific question about the spiritual practice of fasting. And so we're going to look at that, uh, what is fasting. We'll look at Jesus' response to their question in particular there in verse 15. But, but here's the thing. When you include what Jesus goes on to say in verses 16 and 17, all this stuff about patches and wineskins, although that appears at first to have nothing to do with the question, I think it's actually directly related. As Jesus expands outward, really, from this specific practice of spiritual uh, discipline of fasting to highlight a disconnect that all the religious people of his day, and actually religious people right up until today, continue to operate out of. Just like Annie, this misunderstanding of what it is that the welcome of God has actually invited us into. They don't understand it. There's a misunderstanding of what this welcome has invited them into. We're going to dig into Alyssa a little more deeply as we go on this morning, but big picture. If you remember nothing else of what I say this morning, I need you to remember this. What the welcome of God has invited you and me into is not a pattern of religious behavior. It's a relationship. It is not a, a contract by which you earn your keep or your place in the house. It is a covenant guaranteeing your welcome. In order to help you see that, I, I pray, see and truly grasp the fullness of what you've been invited into. I want to look at our passage today in just two ways. We're going to talk about the purpose and place of fasting and then feasting in the presence of the bridegroom. The purpose and place of fasting, feasting in the presence of the bridegroom. So if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me? I would love you to follow along as we look at this together. Matthew 9, beginning at verse 14, as we seek to kind of resolve the disconnect that we're really still in danger of operating in today ourselves, and hopefully also seeking to understand the fullness of all that we're being invited into in the welcome of God. Okay, so let's look first of all at the purpose and place of fasting. And I want to look at this together with you because, I mean, at least briefly, because whether we're talking about this passage in particular or really just the spiritual practice of fasting in general, two questions that I often hear from people in, in, in that context is, first of all, what is fasting? I mean, is that that thing that I keep seeing Facebook ads come up about, intermittent fasting? Is that what this is? And then follow-up question when they hear what it is, is why would anyone want to do that? And then the second question people often ask of this is, is this passage saying that a follower of Jesus doesn't need to fast, that this shouldn't have a place in our lives anymore? So let's just look at these quickly. First of all, as it relates to the spiritual practice of fasting in general. Fasting is one of a longer list of practices, things like prayer, silence and solitude, uh, acts of generosity, uh, uh, acts of service, all these kinds of things called spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines which are used, you can almost think of them as like different machines in a gym that are used to train us to, to grow and deepen our faith. That, that's the point of them. And the point then of the spiritual discipline of fasting in particular is generally speaking to temporarily restrict the intake of food in order to dedicate ourselves more deeply to prayer. 
to, to use our physical appetite to drive us more deeply into knowing and understanding and loving our, our hunger for the things of God. Now, fasting can have a number of different sub-purposes along with that, including um, sometimes we fast in order to seek guidance from God about a really important question to us. Sometimes it's about mourning and grief over our sin, sometimes seeking deliverance or, or protection in some ways. And there's examples of all these different sub-purposes within the Bible, but like I said, generally speaking, fasting is almost always associated in some way with prayer. So a, a, a general kind of practice of fasting would be you would choose a day in which I'm, I'm going to fast in order for this purpose. And each time when I would normally be eating, I set aside time for eating, I would take that time instead to dedicate to prayer, either myself or someone else who's decided to do that together with me. That, that's what fasting is. But then with that understanding in hand, I think we now can kind of dive into this question that John's disciples bring to Jesus about this practice, which we see there in verse 14. Look with me. Matthew writes, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so here's, that, here's the question they brought, and, and if that's all the information we had to go on, we would look at that and just say, Oh, okay, so... We, the, the Pharisees, so John's disciples, they participate in the spiritual discipline of fasting. Jesus and his disciples, they don't do that. Um, um, how come we fast and you guys don't? Um, and then if that's the case, if that's what they're saying, I think we could draw an even further inference that would say, well, okay, if Jesus and his disciples didn't do this in his day, then probably spirit, like fasting should have no place in our lives either because uh, he didn't do it. We probably shouldn't either. That's where that question comes up. The first problem is that that's drawing conclusions from incomplete information. That, that's, that's the first thing. Uh, incomplete because for whatever reason, maybe just simplicity or clarity of messaging, uh, the translators of the English Standard Version, which I'm using here, a lot of you use maybe the New International Version of the Bible, they, they chose to leave out or only make a footnote of a word that says often or much where, the, where the, the disciples of John say, why do we and the Pharisees fast much or often? Which means that's what they're really asking Jesus is not how come you and your disciples don't fast at all, but really why it is that you don't fast more specifically as much as we do. How come you guys don't fast as, as, as often as we do? Which I don't know, I mean, maybe we can give John's disciples a pass because they don't fully understand who Jesus is and, and what he's all about, but man, wow. You're going to ask Jesus why he's not as spiritual as you? I think that's like a whole different level of disconnect going on, but we, we do it. We actually do do this still. Um, but just to give you a context, like why would they even ask this question to begin with? Because that seems pretty random to just walk up to someone one day and ask them about like their personal spiritual practice and be like, why don't you do it as much as, as we do? It seems random. It feels like, you know, at a Comic-Con convention where people ask all kinds of like questions that seem super random to us but are normal to them, like about Klingon language and like season seven, episode 29, do you remember that thing? And we're like, that seems weird, but that's normal to them? No, the, the context is actually much more simple here. Although there was only one fast uh, in the Old Testament law, we read about in Leviticus 16, that God's people, generally speaking, all together, were supposed to participate in. It was this corporate fasting and repentance for sin that took place on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. 
in the New Testament times, what pious Jews had, had done was actually include, add on, an additional practice of fasting weekly. They fasted every Monday and Thursday, and then on top of that, they would fast on other solemn days. So they would add those fasts in as well, operating uh, as, I guess, religious people often do under the more is better principle. So they, it's, it's not just that John's disciples and the Pharisees fasted more than Jesus and his disciples. They, they fasted more than everybody. Uh, they fasted a lot. But then, okay, now add on to that the way that Matthew adds that little word right at the beginning of verse 14, then. He says, then, which, which links what we have in our passage today with what we looked at last week, which if you weren't here or you've just forgotten, was where Jesus and his disciples are feasting together with a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners. So Leon Morris kind of helps draw this together. He says, while then may not point to strict sequence, it may be that John's disciples are fasting on a day when Jesus and his followers are feasting. Which I think just altogether creates this kind of perfect storm where once again, Jesus' invitation has brought offense to the religious. This time, not because of who he's eating with, but how often he's eating. The point is, uh, whether John's disciples are bragging, like how come you don't fast as much as we do, or they're just genuinely asking, the point is, yeah, the Pharisees and John's disciples, they have this rigorous practice of fasting while Jesus and his disciples clearly do not. And so in the face of this glaring contrast, they're just putting the question to Jesus of why that is. This seems strange. We do this all the time. Why don't you? But when you look at Jesus' response, there in the second half of verse 15, it says, when the bridegroom is taken away, then my disciples will fast. And then add that to what Jesus teaches about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 6, when he says, literally, when you fast, like, do, do this and don't do that, I think we see all together, no, fasting was absolutely a practice Jesus and his disciples did participate in, and that Jesus both endorses and sees as, as valuable. So he's, he's saying very clearly, no, fasting is important. This should be a part of the life of a follower of Jesus. Now, sure, what does Jesus mean in that response? If you see there in verse 15, all this stuff about a bridegroom and wedding guests. Because apparently, um, you know, the followers of Jesus were not supposed to fast until the bridegroom, whoever that is, is taken away. So, so what's, all, what's that about? What's going on there? Good question. We're going to come to that in, in just a moment. But as it relates to this discussion here, I want to focus first of all on what Jesus says about the purpose and place of fasting in particular first. Then we'll come to that question because, I mean, if fasting is a practice that we're still supposed to be involved in and participate in as followers of Jesus today, I think it'd be important that we know both what it is and what the place of it should be in our lives. And this is interesting because if you look again at verse 15, as I said, there's all these different kind of sub-purposes of why someone would participate in fasting. But if you look at the first part of verse 15, you notice that Jesus categorizes the practice of fasting overall, like whatever your particular purpose is, as mourning. The, the, the disciples of John, how come your disciples don't fast as much as we do? And Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Okay, almost like saying that fasting is, generally speaking, a mournful exercise. That we are, are crying out to God, either on behalf of ourselves or someone else, for whatever that purpose is. We're seeking wisdom, deliverance, forgiveness, restoration. It's a mournful practice, which, listen, that's not for a second to say that that's a bad thing. 
mournful practice is a wrong thing. In fact, Sarah and I have been uh, listening through some interesting podcasts, learning a lot right now about how grief and mourning is something we actually need to learn to do far better than, than we do. So absolutely, he's not saying at all that mourning is something wrong. No, only that the reason, the, the purpose of fasting is most often associated with mourning of some kind. So we, we could say it this way. The purpose of fasting is to aid us in mourning well as we bring our need for wisdom, healing, deliverance, whatever it is, to God in prayer, restricting our physical appetite in order to drive us deeper into spiritual hunger for God. That, that's what fasting should be about for a follower of Jesus. But although Jesus isn't critiquing the practice of fasting, what he does seem to be critiquing is the place of it. That is, what is it we believe we're accomplishing when we fast? Because I think when you step, kind of step back and look at the wider picture of what Jesus is getting at in his response, he seems to be asking John's disciples then, as well as you and I today, not just do you understand the purpose of fasting, like what it is, or, or any spiritual discipline for that matter, but do you understand your motivation for fasting as well? Do you know why you do it? And I think he asks that because when you go back and look at what Jesus talks about fasting there in Matthew 6, and he critiques the, the hypocrites, he calls them, who, who practice fasting and all the spiritual disciplines just in order to be seen by men. And then, compare that with the charge that people often lay against the church today of uh, all your religious stuff is just bare legalism. I think uh, that, that complaint, what it centers around, is the idea that religious people, as they see it, kind of just tend to go through the religious motions without either knowing what they're doing or why they're doing it. And so they're like, it's just bare legalism. It doesn't mean anything. So for example, someone might come to you. Let's take a different one. Let's take something like scripture reading. Someone asks you, like, what's that about? What, what, what's Bible reading for? And maybe, you know, you've grown up in church and you've kind of been trained in this and you understand the purpose of it and you say well for me reading the bible this is all about like how i learn more about god it's one of the ways that i feel like he speaks to me and and that's my practice of, of, of this why why i think the purpose of this and, and that's great but for some people actually for a lot of people when they're really pressed on that question like what's bible reading all about for a lot of people their answer is i don't know my, my church said that Reading the Bible is a good thing to do. It helps me grow, so I, I do that. Uh, that's, that's their answer. Which, listen, hear me, that's not to say that you have to be some kind of Bible expert to read the Bible, but uh, even a brand new day one follower of Jesus should understand what they're doing when they are pursuing God through reading the scriptures in the same way that somebody brand new to working out in the gym, they should know why they're using a bench press and not a squat rack. Like, there should be a clarity of what we're doing here. But like I said, maybe you do know. Maybe you're like, okay, no, I do understand the, the purpose of Bible reading, but then somebody goes on and someone else asks, okay, but like, what's your goal in reading the Bible? Why do you do it? What's the purpose of it? And I think answering that question in particular really gets to the heart of what it is that Jesus is wanting you and me to learn here. And it leads us all the way back to that scene from the movie Annie and her operating assumption that her service was the thing that gave her access into the home. Because yes, absolutely, reading the Bible, it's good, it's a good thing. We, we can learn so much about God through his word, and I believe he acts, absolutely, he speaks to us through his word as we come to his scriptures regularly and often. But think of it this way, if you're reading the Bible three hours a day, 
If you have signed up for five different Bible studies through the week and you listen through four different online services every Sunday, that starts to feel like maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe it starts to sound like, just like with the Pharisees and all their fasting, that maybe this spiritual practice has become a means to some other end and it's not to grow deeper in your faith. Because if you think about it, Jesus could have just as easily turned around and asked John's disciples a a kind of counter question and said, why do you and the Pharisees fast so much when the law of God only requires you to fast once a year? I wonder how they would have responded to that question about the place of fasting in their lives. How come you fast so much? Because answering the question regarding the place of spiritual practice, it's, it's a diagnostic question. It reveals the operating assumption that we have of what we believe gives us access into God's house. So whether it's, I don't know, fasting twice a week, signing up for five Bible studies a week, or even just coming to church every Sunday, I think what Jesus is ultimately asking us to consider through this passage is what is the place of that spiritual practice in your life? What do you believe it is accomplishing? And how you answer that question, I believe, will be determined almost entirely by what you believe the welcome of God has invited you into. Because although, yes, a fast can be a tool to help you grow and strengthen in your faith, what the welcome of God has invited you into is not a fast, but a feast. I think that's what Jesus is literally picturing as he feasts with his disciples while the disciples of John and the Pharisees are fasting. He's trying to contrast the things of like, this is what I've invited you into. What God in his welcome has invited us into is not a pattern of religious behavior. Like I said, it's a relationship. And actually, even more specifically than that, a marriage relationship. That's the kind of relationship God has invited you into. Confused? Let's talk about it for a second. Uh, What do I mean by that? Uh, Let's look lastly here at feasting in the presence of the bridegroom. What does it mean that the kind of relationship God has invited us into in Jesus is a marriage relationship? And some of this you see in Jesus' response in verse 15. Some of it is in verse 16 and 17. So let's look first at verse 15 once more. Jesus responds to this question about fasting by saying, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So what's all that supposed to mean? Okay, well, first of all, I think what that would have meant to a Jewish person in Jesus' day is that this is yet one more place where Jesus is claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be God. And the reason they would have understood that is because all through the Old Testament scriptures, one of the primary metaphors that God used to describe his relationship with his covenant people Israel was marriage. That's one of the primary metaphors he used, and if you didn't know already, the New Testament picks up right where the Old Testament left off and continues to use that imagery right through to the end of the Bible. It's why, for instance, why you you get to the climactic end of all things in Revelation 19, you see this huge multitude of voices all praising God together because, quote, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This is the church. This is all God's people saved and brought into his kingdom. Or Revelation 21, John writes, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. See, we're seeing this language like right through to the end of the Bible. 
And what Jesus is saying by describing himself as the bridegroom is that he is the fulfillment of all that Old Testament prophecy. In fact, John the Baptist, John chapter 3, when you read there, he actually says this very thing about Jesus. Um, Jesus' ministry begins to overtake John's, and, and John's disciples come to John and they're kind of questioning, hey, what's going on here? He's, he's getting more people than we are and baptizing more people. And John the Baptist says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, meaning himself, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. But here's the thing. Far more than just making another claim to his divinity, what Jesus is primarily seeking to communicate here by describing himself as the bridegroom and his disciples as, as the wedding guests, or more specifically uh, as the wedding party, the, the kind of like the head table guys. What he's trying to say is that what the welcome of God is inviting us into is a wedding party. All the joy and feasting and celebration that comes along with a wedding. I mean, a wedding in, in this first century context was like a week-long celebration, just filled with feasting and music and joy and dancing. Uh, all were invited in to be a part of it. Jesus is saying, that's what the welcome of God is inviting you into. That's what he's picturing. And I know maybe for a lot of us that sounds good, but I want to pause for just a second because I know for some of you that actually that sounds awful. Um, marriage is the last thing you want to see associated with Jesus because maybe your parents' marriage was a nightmare, maybe your husband was a train wreck or whatever it is, and, and there's a lot of pain associated with this idea of marriage. And so, man, we don't, we don't want Jesus to be associated at all with, with our relationship of, of marriage. That, that doesn't sound good at all. I just want to acknowledge that hurt because that's, that's real, that's a real thing. And yet I love what Tim Keller once said so well. He said, the reason that hurts so much, the reason we're so mad at marriages that end like that or that feel like that is because almost intuitively we know that's not what marriage is supposed to be like. We know that's not how a husband is supposed to treat his wife. And that's what makes us hurt so deeply when we experience that. The glorious truth of the gospel is that we find, what we find in Jesus as our bridegroom is the ideal of those things that we all long for. But when you transfer this ideal of marriage and then the wedding celebration Jesus says he and his disciples are enjoying while in his presence, it starts to make more sense as well why they weren't fasting, right? Because a wedding is a celebration. Fasting is a mournful exercise. Jesus says, yeah, when the bridegroom is taken away, referring to his, his death and burial at least, yeah, then, then the, the mourning is appropriate. But in the presence of the bridegroom, mourning has no place whatsoever. It's a time for celebration, not a time for mourning. But I think it actually goes even deeper than that. And I think that's exactly why Jesus goes on there in verse 16 and 17 to talk about this sewing an unshrunk piece of cloth onto a torn garment, putting new wine into old wineskins. Because along with showing us the joy and celebration of being in Jesus' presence, that, that what he's inviting you into is a feast and not a fast, what Jesus is ultimately saying is that the welcome of God, what it's inviting you and me into, is a whole different way of, of seeing and understanding the practice of any spiritual discipline. What he's, what he's inviting us into is not just some updated, refurbished, 
patched up version of the old way of gaining access to him through, through sacrifices and law keeping, all these. It's, it's not a repackaged Judaism. That's not what he came to bring. No, what the welcome of God is inviting us into is something entirely brand new. It's entirely new. It's, a, it's an entirely new operating assumption where I seek God. I, I serve God. I even seek to grow deeper in my faith by means of spiritual disciplines, not in order to earn God's acceptance, but because in Jesus I already have it. It's a whole new way of operating and approaching God. That's what he came to bring. It's actually a fulfillment of something God said all the way back in Jeremiah 31. I'd love you to go back today or this week, read that, where God talks about, I'm, I'm going to form a new covenant with you, where it's the, the law is not something out here you strive for. It's something in here, where I write it right on your hearts. That's the new thing I'm bringing. Jesus is saying, I've brought that. That's what I'm bringing to you. It's happening here. You see the perpetual problem with the Pharisees and the religiously serious of Jesus' day, just as today as well, is that, man, they fasted way more than they needed to. They, they prayed way more than they, they needed to. They gave and studied more than they needed to. As we saw last week, they even like, tried to keep themselves from being contaminated by sinners more than they needed to. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why they were so offended when Jesus and his disciples didn't. But because what they believed they were accomplishing through their rigorous spiritual discipline was acceptance by God. That's what they thought they were earning. Because for them, just like Annie, their operating assumption was that the welcome of God was a contract. Where the, the only thing that would allow someone like them to be welcomed by someone like God was through their service. That's how I earn my acceptance with God. And although it's sad and so tragic, the crazy thing to consider is that even when Jesus revealed his new way, he invited them into this new way of access to God, which was ultimately a fulfillment of the old way. They still chose the old way. Maybe you think, why would they do that? Why would somebody intentionally choose working for something that was freely given to you? I, I don't know. I, I haven't spoken to them. But I think I have an idea. And I think it's this, because for every person who perhaps today is maybe more of a free spirit, a creative type, doesn't like to be constrained by rules too much and regulations of how things have to be, for every person like that, there's another person who needs the world to work like that. They're the kind of person who's going to say, like, just, just tell me what I need to do so that I know what's expected of me. Just lay it out for me so I can do it. And I'm not trying to say that one is better than the other, one's more spiritual than the other. Only that for the Pharisees and the religious of Jesus' day, rule keeping definitely matched with their personality. They loved that the law of Moses just laid out very clearly the goals that they were to strive for, gave them the bar to know how well they were performing and also to judge people on how poorly they were performing. They, they loved that. That helped the world make sense for them to just have this clearly lined out way of operating. The problem with that is that it's this, this wasn't about just like different approaches to God for different personality types. The problem was that one approach actually invited you into the presence of God and the other one didn't. It actually couldn't. For as Jesus' half-brother James later said, James 2, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So, it's not that law-keeping wasn't a way of access to God. It's just that nobody could do it 
because guilty of failing at one point was guilty of all of it. Nobody could live up to that until Jesus. Or, or even the Apostle Paul, later Romans 3, Paul who, after he finally abandoned the, the hopeless pursuit of access to God by means of his service and accepted Jesus' new operating assumption himself, he said, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's, 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 it's not just alternate ways of access. It's, it's an impossible way of access. And yet, this is so cool because of what Paul went on to say in the very next verse was, but now the righteousness of God, the, the welcome of God, this wedding invitation has been made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. <clears throat> this is the new approach. This is uh, the, 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 what the old way of operating was actually always pointing ahead to. This is the message of the gospel, what Jesus came to bring in his invitation. The righteousness of God through faith, not through service, not through obedience, through faith in Jesus' work, through faith in his obedience. And this, uh, as Keller says so well, is why whenever we're talking about Jesus with other people, we always need to be careful to distinguish between the gospel, that is the free offer of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, and religion, the idea that I earn acceptance with God through my obedience. Why? Because if you don't, whenever you ask people to come to Jesus, whenever you present the wedding invitation of God in Jesus to them, they'll, all they'll think you're asking them to do is to become religious. They'll think you're asking them to take on a whole new set of rules and regulations by which they now have to live. They'll think you're asking them to become Republicans. But as he goes on to say, when you contrast the, the hopeless, legalistic pursuit of God through religious performance with the free offer of the welcome into the wedding party that is a redeemed relationship with Jesus, man, they, he says, boy, do you see a lot of lights go on for people when they see the difference between those things. And the result in God's timing is that people are saved and their operating assumptions become changed forever. When they really see what God is inviting them into. So what I want to ask you now is, well, what about you? What's your operating assumption today? Do you understand the fullness of what you've been invited into? Now you're living in that reality. I mean, we've talked a lot about Pharisees and John's disciples and those guys. What, what about you? What's, what's your response to Jesus' invitation. I began this morning by asking you, saying, if you remember nothing else of what I said today, if you remember this, I need you to remember this, that the welcome of God has not invited us into a pattern of religious behavior, but into a relationship, not to a contract where you earn your keep, but a covenant guaranteeing your welcome. And so now we've, we've spent a lot of time unpacking that statement. I want to just pause as we close this morning and just take a moment to really sit and consider myself. How am I responding to Jesus' invitation? Maybe you've never responded to that invitation. Maybe you have, but the contrast for you today is, is saying like not, it's not just what spiritual disciplines are, but why I'm doing them. It's all dictated by what we understand the welcome of God has invited us into. As we saw, yeah, some, some reject God's offer of welcome right out of hand because they think they're being just invited to take on a, a religious system of rules and regulations. What Jesus is saying here is, no, 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 
that's not at all what I'm inviting you into. I'm inviting you into a relationship. I'm inviting you to the wedding celebration. For others, they're offended at Jesus' new operating assumption because their, their current assumption is that access is only gained through service. So they're offended by this idea because what could be more offensive than to tell someone who believes they've earned access to God to tell them they actually haven't and the worst and the lowest of the lot, they actually have been granted access. Or they're frustrated by Jesus' invitation because grace is messy. It doesn't have like clearly lined out rules and regulations for every single circumstance of life and it's frustrating to them. But for others myself included, I would include myself in this group and I pray you would as well. We've accepted Jesus' new operating assumption by faith. And now, man, we are as surprised as anybody to be sitting at the table and welcomed in. We're just like those people who know we're lucky to be here. Because we know we had no hope in and of ourselves of deserving an invitation and we certainly didn't come dressed for the party. So how will you respond today? The, the Pharisees, the, the religiously serious of Jesus' day, they, 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 operating out of that old assumption, that old operating assumption, they tied up burdens of law-keeping on people's backs that were far too heavy to carry, that they themselves couldn't even carry, all because they saw their labor as the only means of access of welcome to God. Remember, the more is better principle. If fasting once a year is good, then fasting once a week even better. If fasting once a week is good, maybe fasting twice a week is even better. Make me more acceptable to God. The burdens became heavier and heavier and heavier. And yet, in presenting his brand new operating assumption, in bringing his wedding invitation to the burden of his day as well as today, Jesus simply beckoned, come unto me. There's his invitation. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from striving to earn God's acceptance as you realize in me you have it. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I pray that you'd receive that invitation today. Amen. Amen.